Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Antioch, and Merry Christmas. Today is the first Sunday after Christmas, also known as Youth Pastor Sunday, which is the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's when youth pastors all over the country get their chance to preach to the 13 people who show up for church that week. Uh, Today is also the third day of Christmas, and while I wasn't able to find any French hens, there are actually two turtle doves in our gospel passage for today, so you can look forward to that. Um, Since it's the last Sunday of the year, we thought it would be a fitting time for us to receive communion together as much as that's possible online. I've told you before that there's certain aspects of the life of the church that just don't feel like they translate to the internet very well, and communion is one of them. But after the year we've had and after the season of Advent, I know that I could use all the Jesus I can get. And so we're going to give it a shot uh, at the end of the message today. So if you'd like to participate in communion, you can even press pause right now. Go grab some bread and wine or juice, and you'll be ready to come to the table at the end. Um, This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. And it's the story that immediately follows the birth of Jesus Or in other words, it's the first story after Christmas, and it's a story about an old man named Simeon. So let's read in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So at this point, baby Jesus is now 40 days old. And as observant Jewish parents, Mary and Joseph are obeying God's command from way back in Leviticus 12, and they're taking their baby to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. Which, by the way, if you've been around Antioch for any length of time, you know that this is one of the reasons that we do child dedications as well. Jesus was dedicated as a child, and so we dedicate our kids to the Lord too. But part of the law that was given to the Israelites in Leviticus 12 was that when you brought your baby to be dedicated, you were supposed to also bring a one-year-old lamb and either a pigeon or a dove as offerings to be sacrificed by the priest. Um, But what's interesting, in our story in Luke chapter 2, Joseph and Mary don't bring a lamb. What we're told is that they brought a pair of birds, or if you're reading the King James Version, two turtle doves. So there you go. But what's going on here? Well, at the end of verse 24, Luke quotes directly from, from Leviticus 12 which if you go back and look at it in context, what it says is that if you can't afford to buy a lamb, then you could bring two young pigeons or two young doves, one for a burnt offering and one for a sin offering. And so if your family was poor, so poor that you couldn't afford to buy a lamb, then instead you could bring two turtle doves. And for me, 
This causes the scandal of the Incarnation to continue to sink in even more. The fact that Jesus was born into a poor family, so poor that even though his parents knew they had just given birth to the Messiah of Israel, when it came time to dedicate him in the temple, they couldn't even scrounge up enough cash to bring the proper sacrifice. Jesus was born into poverty. He makes his home among the have-nots. He comes to those who are in need. He gives himself to those who have nothing else. Or in other words, blessed are the poor. So when Jesus grows up and speaks of God's heart for the poor, he's speaking from experience. And years later, when the Apostle Paul would look back on the scandal of the Incarnation, he would say, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells his disciples that whatever they do for the least of these, they do it for him it's really not that confusing. It's like me saying, whatever you do for the Kelly family, you do for me. Why? Because these are my people. This is who I belong to. And Jesus came to us and lived among us as one who was poor. So the poor, the economically challenged, the so socially disadvantaged, those are his people. Those are who he belongs to. So whatever we do for the poor, we do for him. And whatever we don't do for the poor, we don't do for him. So disciples of the real Jesus love him by loving those who need love the most. Or as Pastor Tim Keller puts it, if you don't love the poor, you don't know what God has done for you. So Jesus' family is poor. And they bring him to the temple to be dedicated. Let's keep reading in Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So here's the scene. The temple as always, is bustling with activity. There's people everywhere, just like any other day. But in the midst of the crowd, there's this old man named Simeon. We don't know that much else about him, but what we do know is that he was righteous and devout. In fact, his name, Simeon, comes from the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear and understand. And the prayer that observant Jews would repeat all the time was called the Shema. It was from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The first word in that prayer is hear, which is Shema. It instructs the hearer not only to listen and understand, but also to respond appropriately in faith and obedience. And so Simeon, we're told, is waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
And it's been hard times for Israel for almost 600 years at this point. The Israelites have been occupied, deported, exiled, in need of rescue. And Simeon knows that through the prophets, God has promised to send a servant, one who would be their liberating king. And so he spent his life waiting for that day. So Simeon is Shema. He's a man who hears from God and understands. And at some point, God has revealed to Simeon that he is going to live to see the Messiah, the one who would be born the king of the Jews and rescue Israel from King Herod and the Roman Empire. So he's waiting for the consolation. But when it says that Simeon was waiting for the Messiah, it's not a passive, disinterested kind of waiting, like I'm waiting until the new year to start my diet. It's an active, passionate kind of waiting, looking, seeking, praying, longing for. It's the thing that his heart is set on, like if there's one thing he wants to do before he dies, it's this. So when I was 21, I sat down and wrote out my bucket list, basically the top 10 things I wanted to accomplish in life before I kicked the bucket. Uh, this was 19 years ago now, before I was married or knew what I was going to do with my life. But in 2001, I sat down and wrote my bucket list. And uh, I'll read it for you if that's all right. Number one, build my own house. Number two, write a book. Number three, visit the Holy Land. Number four, get in a fist fight. Number five, travel Europe with my wife. Six, restore a classic car. Seven, kill something bigger than me. Eight, record an album. Nine, plant a church. And number 10, have a pet monkey. So, so far, I've done four out of the 10. I've planted a church, I've recorded an album, uh, I've visited the Holy Land twice actually, and I've killed something bigger than myself, which when I originally wrote that goal, I was picturing like an elk or a moose or something. Uh, it actually turned out to be an 1800 pound dairy cow with a broken hip, but I'll take what I can get. So that's my bucket list. Luke tells us essentially that Simeon has a bucket list as well. But his list only has one thing on it. There's only one thing Simeon wants to do before he dies. He wants to see Jesus. That's it. That's his list. That's all he wants. And the Holy Spirit in one way or another has revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die until he had. And so he's waiting, seeking, praying, longing for God's Christ to show up. So whatever has gone down in Simeon's life up until this point, he's come to the conclusion that there is no satisfaction outside of God. We don't know whether he was rich or poor, uh, whether he was successful or struggling, whether he was esteemed or unknown, we don't know. But what we do know is that he knew nothing but Jesus could satisfy the desires of his heart.
There was this thirst in his soul that couldn't be quenched by power or status or wealth or fame or anything else, only God. And so he spends his life walking faithfully with God, trusting God alone to fulfill the desires of his heart. And then one day the Holy Spirit prompts Simeon to go to the temple and being Shema, being a man who hears and understands God, he obeys and he goes. Verse 27, we'll keep on reading. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So picture Simeon's heart is racing. His hands are trembling. His eyes are tearing up as he takes this baby into his arms and he realizes that this is it. This is the moment he's been waiting for his entire life. The Messiah is here. God has come into the world and he's holding him. And what happens in Simeon in that moment? Well, we see that his heart erupts with worship. He breaks out and praises God, rejoicing in God's faithfulness, declaring God's glory. His heart is completely satisfied. And in verse 29, he even says that you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He's basically saying, my life is complete and I'm ready to die. So what can we learn from this story this Christmas? Simply this, that Jesus satisfies the hearts of those who worship him alone. As a devout worshiper of Yahweh, one of the practices that would have marked Simeon's life was praying the Psalms. The Psalms, as you know, are the prayer book of the Bible, and they were given by God to teach his people how to pray. And so Simeon, righteous and devout, would have prayed the Psalms every single day, including a Psalm like Psalm 86, which says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So Simeon was a man with an undivided heart. And this Psalm calls all of God's people to make it their prayer that God would give them an undivided heart, a heart that's deepest longing is for God himself. Or as the philosopher Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. Wouldn't it be cool if one day that were said about you or about me, that Pete worships God with an undivided heart? that Pete only wants one thing, to see and to behold God. It sounds great, but if we're honest, 
It also sounds kind of radical, doesn't it? To build your whole life around one thing. It sounds kind of risky, like you're probably setting yourself up for disappointment. But there's a place later on in the story in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead, then as Christians, we of all people are to be pitied. Or if the story of the gospel isn't true, then followers of Jesus have wasted our lives. And I wonder how many of this, how many of us, is this actually true of? That we are seeking Christ so faithfully and trusting God so fervently that if it turns out that the gospel is one big hoax, then our lives have been a total waste. It almost seems like Paul's saying that's our goal, like that's what we're going for, to put so much hope in Jesus that our life would be pitiful and pathetic without him. Are you willing to make this your prayer? That God would give you an undivided heart? Are you willing to risk everything for the sake of walking with him? This goes totally against everything in us and around us. I mean, think about all the phrases we hear on a daily basis that remind us not to live this way. Like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Keep your options open. Diversify your portfolio. Don't give your hopes up. All of this is based on a world where nothing is certain. Everything changes. People change. Circumstances change. The economy could tank at any moment. The world as we know it could come to an end. How can we live with an undivided heart in a world like that? Well, the reason we can have an undivided heart towards God is that in Christ, God has an undivided heart towards us. In a world where everything changes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because God never changes, His character never changes, His promises to us are trustworthy and true. So we always know where we are with God. Our standing with God isn't based on a sliding scale of approval, based on our performance of how well we've been doing. Our standing with God is secure in Christ. Or in other words, if you want to know, how does God feel about me? The answer is, well, how does God feel about Jesus? Now, how do we know that for sure? Well, in this story, the Christmas story, Baby Jesus starts off in a manger. But as we know, he doesn't stay, stay there. And as Simeon holds this little Christ child in his arms, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, Simeon may or may not have realized what this salvation was going to cost this child that one day those perfect little baby hands and baby feet 
would have nails driven through them. And one day, that little round baby head is going to have a crown of thorns thrust upon it. So why should you give up everything in order to receive Christ? How can you know if he's worth it? Because he's given up everything for you. And so this morning we're going to come to the table. And as we do, I want to invite you to come with the heart of Simeon. A heart longing to see and to behold God and his salvation. What's interesting is this past week as we celebrated Christmas together as a family, Jen and I always try to impart the grace of giving to our kids, meaning we want them to experience the joy not only of getting gifts, but the even greater joy of giving gifts. So Jesus himself taught that it's more blessed to give than to receive, which in general is true, but here's the thing. With communion, it actually works the exact opposite way. The communion isn't something that we give to God. It's not something we do to gain his approval or acceptance or love. Communion is something God gives to us. Which is why at Antioch we always say we don't take communion as if we have to pry grace out of God's clenched fist. We receive communion, the gift that it is. And so we come to this table this morning to receive Christ, to welcome Jesus, to accept his life and his love. And the good news of Christmas is that God has given himself to us. So join me in receiving Christ again today. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Antioch, the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Antioch, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Take and drink. Will you join me in this closing prayer? We'll pray it together. It's a prayer by Soren Kierkegaard. Father in heaven, what are we without you? What is all that we know, vast accumulation though it be, but a chipped fragment if we do not know you? What is all our striving? Could it ever encompass a world but a half-finished work if we do not know you? You, the one who is one thing and who is all. So may you give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend that one thing, 
to the heart, sincerity to receive this and this only. To the will, purity that wills only one thing. In prosperity, may you grant perseverance to will one thing. Amid distraction, collectedness to will one thing. In suffering, patience to will one thing. You that gives both the beginning and the completion, may you early at the dawn of the day give to the young the resolution to will one thing. As the day wanes, may you give to the old a renewed remembrance of that first resolution, that the first may be like the last, and the last like the first, in possession of a life that has willed only one thing, to know God. Amen.